Welcome to the Monday Scramble. Uh, there was never going to be much doubt about uh, our first topic of the day once uh, the sad news of last week got out. So to talk about the whole question of how events unfold now that a replacement uh, for uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has to be found sooner or later uh, is U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking time out on what is going to be, I think, a very busy week. Yes? A very busy week filled first with remembrances and grief and pain at the loss of such an iconic giant in the law, someone who forged principles and provided a role model, broke barriers from the courtroom to the classroom, and provided a legacy, not only in constitutional principle, but in the generations that she inspired to go into the law. So, yes, ordinarily, this would be maybe a little bit more like uh, the loss of John Lewis. We'd have some time for reflection, contemplation, uh, honoring the legacy. It doesn't seem as though we are going to be afforded that luxury this time. It seems as though we're going to be plunged into some uh, pretty highly contested uh, conversations about who the successor is going to be and how the successor is going to be chosen and on what timetable. I guess my first question is, how soon are you expecting an announcement from the president? The president says he's going to make an announcement as to the nominee sometime this week. But honoring the legacy of Justice Ginsburg means more than just remembering her as a giant, uh, an iconic figure. It also means honoring the principles that she established in voting rights and gender equality, anti-discrimination, gun violence prevention, uh, reproductive rights, a slew of constitutional principles that are now threatened by that potential nominee. And also her legacy in her dying wish, which was absolutely correct, that there be no confirmation of a nominee until after the election and inaugural. So I'm determined to fight any nominee, a vote on any confirmation before the election and inaugural. Now, you know, we had assurances from Republican leadership uh, after the Merrick Garland debacle that that kind of thing, the kind of thing that we're seeing right now, wouldn't happen even when the ball was a little bit more in their court, when they had a, a, a president from their party. Chuck Grassley uh, said uh, on Fox that he would not support a nomination in the last year uh, of uh, Trump's presidency. I mean, he said it unequivocally. And, and a much played clip here is Lindsey Graham uh, also saying a similar thing. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. So I, there doesn't seem, Senator, to be any cost for reversing oneself after these kinds of promises. That is a really key point because there rushing recklessly and treacherously to this confirmation would be the height of hypocrisy. It would break their word. Uh, not only Senator Graham, but also Senator Grassley and Senator McConnell and others. It would really uh, strike a dagger at the heart of democracy, but also break 
their word and break the Senate norms, rules, precedents. And so there's a lot at stake here, but hypocrisy has unfortunately never really been an insuperable barrier for Mitch McConnell. He has reversed himself, tied himself in linguistic knots that would embarrass a high school civics class. And I expect we're going to have a really tough fight ahead. I'm determined to fight like hell to make sure there is no nominee confirmed before the election and inaugural. What are the chances that um, Leader McConnell would simply not have hearings? I mean, I don't think he technically has to have uh, confirmation hearings. I think there will be hearings because it will be part of what they hope to be the patina of legitimacy that they would like to have for this proceeding. But while they may retain some superficial appearance of propriety, they'll press ahead with hearings, give us a deadline as to how many questions and how long we can ask those questions, and then just rush the vote. But I think we have also the option of going to the American people. I'm going to take this case to the American people to hold Republican senators accountable to keep their word, to honor those pledges, to show their hypocrisy. And I believe the American people are going to stand up and speak out, and that will give them pause, particularly the Republicans who are in tough races and consider themselves vulnerable in Colorado and Arizona and Maine and North Carolina, even Iowa, Montana. They're going to have to answer the people. We should take our case, the American people, because they ought to be outraged that the Republicans are pressing ahead, rushing with this nomination without any reason to do so. Is there a political risk in doing that? Um, it has been posited anyway that what you have right now is an, ere- an election that, at least heading into the end of last week, was cut along the lines in particular of the coronavirus response, uh, that that was a losing issue for Trump, a winning issue for Biden, and similarly maybe a down ticket as well. And suddenly we're going to have a li- something approximating a more standard culture war over a Supreme Court nominee or over the process of arriving at a su- Supreme Court replacement. And, and so you shift the conversation a little bit. Is there a risk there? Ultimately, we need to do what's right, which is try to prevent the confirmation of a nominee without the American people being heard. There's a fundamental principle here. The American people should have their voices heard. They should have a say before any nominee is confirmed, and that's why the confirmation should await the election and the inaugural. But I do believe ultimately this election will be about the president's irresponsible and reprehensible failure to deal with the pandemic is causing, in effect, loss of life. The nearly 200,000 Americans who have perished as a result of this health crisis could have been greatly lessened if he had taken it seriously, acted wisely and decisively rather than dismissing it as a hoax, demeaning and ridiculing the public health experts, and in effect, 
failing to provide the tools needed to combat this deadly insidious disease. And likewise, people out of jobs who are struggling to put food on the table, businesses striving to keep their doors open. I think that the economic crisis combined with a public health emergency ultimately will be the decisive factor here. There's a, I think, you know, as of yesterday and this morning, there's sort of also a growing anxiety here. You keep talking about the American people. The American people, some of the American people are starting to realize that majority rule is is also something that's a little questionable these days. The Republicans have won the popular vote in one of the last seven presidential cycles. Uh, nominees from these presidents uh, go to the Senate, which is set up to overrepresent some people and underrepresent uh, uh, other people. Uh, they approve Supreme Court nominees who hang around. <laughs> For for decades, who really so you've got all three branches kind of involved in this process that doesn't really seem to correspond very well to majority rule. I don't know what I expect you to say about that, but I bet you have something to say. <laughs> well, if you want a, an exposition on the history of the republic or the constitution checks and balances which provide minorities great rights in our system, after all, the Senate was designed to provide a voice and vote for states that may have lower population. Right now, the Senate is controlled by Republicans, but only by virtue of seats in the Senate that represent less than a majority of our population, far less. So your point is very well taken. It's part of the fabric of our system that it gives rights to minorities to block action under certain circumstances. It's also part of the rules of the Senate, the so-called filibuster, which requires a 60-vote margin, gives rights to the minorities. That uh, 60-vote cloture rule was effectively diluted so that now only a majority is required to approve Supreme Court justices and other judges and the Republicans have been able to, in effect, pack the courts with far-right fringe candidates approved by a majority of the Senate when the majority of the country probably would oppose them. And that means that more is at stake in this election than ever before. I have run into so many people who are scared and sad, and I share those feelings, which makes our obligation to vote all the more imperative in this election, not only ourselves voting, but taking five people to the polls, whether in this state or phoning friends in another state to make sure that the majority is heard this time in states where it matters, those battleground states that will decide the Electoral College. Again, another somewhat undemocratic institution, but one that we need to win this time around. So assuming that McConnell were to go forward as he seems to plan to do, um, you know, there are some kind of post-election, I don't know if we would call them nuclear options, uh, and they involve counting chickens that have not hatched yet. But I mean, one of the narratives that we, we're hearing these days is uh, you win the presidency, the Democrats regain control of the Senate, and then they can expand also, I believe, with a majority vote, the size of the court. Uh, there are some other things that can happen. Is that is that part of this conversation already? 
my focus right now is on winning this fight in the days ahead. And I'm going to fight like hell to assure that there is no vote on this nominee before the election and inaugural and that we take back the Senate and win the presidency. I think those challenges ought to be front and center right now and deal with the options later. Right now, nothing's off the table, but the focus should be on the immediate challenges ahead. When you say fight like hell, what can you do? I mean, what are your, first of all, is there a way that the Democrats could slow walk this process so that there ultimately wasn't enough time? There are various procedural tools and options that we have. We're strategizing about them, discussing them in depth, and uh, hopefully reaching a strategy that makes sense. And when you say fight like hell, what else do you mean? You're talking about taking your case to the American public. What, In your mind, what would happen as a result of that? My colleagues in states like Arizona and Colorado and Montana, North Carolina, Maine, and others would hear from their constituents and would go to Mitch McConnell and say, this kind of hypocrisy makes no sense. We simply can't vote with you. As we head into this cycle, I mean, we have uh, other anxieties uh, as well. But actually, let me just cut back to something about some of the senators who have come forward. So Senators Murkowski and Collins have said certain things. Um, I, I think it's, it will be interesting to see what sorts of commitments other people make, because it seems to me that a Republican senator could say, I'm opposed to confirming a justice before the results of the election, before the swearing in of, of the next president or the next presidential term. It's one thing to oppose it. It's another thing to actually vote against confirmation. I assume you Democrats are parsing the statements that are made by Republicans to see whether are they really promising to vote against the confirmation or are they just in principle in a way that will fade into the midst, mist uh, opposed to doing it this way. We're doing more than parsing their statements. We're also reaching out to them and really talking heart to heart. Many of us have personal relationships with fellow Republicans. They're in the Senate at a heightened level of responsibility because they believe they have an obligation to serve the public interest, hopefully. And we're appealing to those better angels that history will judge them by what they do on this vote. This uh, confirmation battle is really going to be historic in its consequences. It will affect real people, real lives with real impacts, people who now depend on uh, reproductive rights established by the court to determine when they want to become pregnant, if ever, people who depend on the court for voting rights, which have been undermined, people who depend on the court for anti-discrimination laws and the possible consequences will be real and most prominently health care. Right now in the United States Supreme Court, 
in the days after the election, literally just a few days afterward, there'll be an argument on the Affordable Care Act where the administration is seeking to strike down, literally decimate the Affordable Care Act, which means no more protection for people with pre-existing conditions. There could not be a case with more far-ranging ramifications for the American public. The consequences are absolutely real and urgent. And my Republican colleagues will have on their conscience that they broke precedent, broke their word, broke the norms of the Senate, and in fact, maybe broke the Senate itself as a functioning institution if they treacherously rush this nomination to a vote before the election and inaugural. We're going to make the case to them as well as to the American people. It seems as though one of the risks for everybody of having a confirmation hearing, I mean, you're on the Judiciary Committee, having these kinds of hearings in the October before a November presidential election is that everything is potentially a soundbite. Everything is potentially uh, an, uh, a clip that's turned into an advertisement in the space of 24 hours to use against whoever said it. And I'm just wondering what you could, you could say as one of the people who will be asking questions, obviously, you don't want want to produce tape, so to speak, that the opposition of one of your Senate colleagues could use or could turn into a presidential ad for President Trump. But can you can you function while thinking about something like that? I mean, obviously, this is suboptimal that it's happening at all. But 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 what happens to somebody like you when you have in the back of your mind? Well, if I say this, you know, if I ask this question too hard or something like that, it gets turned into an ad. Uh, my focus is really going to be on eliciting the truth, asking questions that show the personality and beliefs of a potential Supreme Court justice, whether she or he has a prejudice or proclivity to one side or another. There are risks in ask, answering, asking or answering any question. There are risks in the process. Uh, needless to say, the timing was not our choice. And coming back to the very beginning of our conversation, I still am grieving the loss of someone whom I so deeply admired, enlisted the uh, fidelity of so many people who believed in her principles and who had such deep affection for her. I'm going to honor her memory by being a tough, aggressive questioner, but with a sensitivity to the human beings who are in front of us. I think there, there are risks in every process, every question, but I think we have a responsibility that is historic here to make sure that this nomination is considered and voted, at least voted only after the election and inaugural. Talking to Senator Richard Blumenthal. So, you know, you talked about grief, the grief that you're feeling. You talked about Americans being not only angry, but afraid. Apart from the grief uh, and the somber feelings you have uh, over the death of, of Justice Ginsburg, I don't know. You're you're pretty good at disguising your moods, but I almost sense you're kind of angry right now, maybe in a way that you typically try not to get. 
I'm still struck by the pain mm. and grief of this moment, the loss of someone whom I knew, albeit informally and somewhat casually, I argued three cases in front of the Supreme Court when Justice Ginsburg served on it. I argued four cases as Attorney General of the State of Connecticut. She was an incisive and insightful, tough questioner. She was soft-spoken, short of stature, but she packed a really powerful punch. There are memories of her as a fighter, an advocate, and litigator that come back to me. Honoring her legacy means being angry and channeling that anger into ways that make a difference for the better in people's lives. That's part of her legacy as well. And so the emotions for me are still somewhat raw, but I will be very deeply angry, infuriated if Senator McConnell rushes to this vote, in effect, dishonoring her legacy and her dying wish that the vote be after the election and inaugural. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Well, we said at the beginning it's going to be a busy week, much bigger, busier than anyone knew. So thanks for taking the time uh, to have this conversation with me. Thank you very much. All right. Stay safe. You too. Take care. I'm back. We're back. I don't usually listen to myself interview anybody, but because that was a pre-tape, I just had it on. I sound kind of old and clueless. I'm worried about that. All right. Presumably, I'm going to do better now because it's uh, later in the day. Uh, Joining us now because every week we talk to uh, people who are uh, specialists in epidemiology, in virology, in public health, and in public health journalism. just to try to get a handle on where where are we uh, right now in this all-encompassing situation. Joining us today for that very purpose is Kate Grabowski, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Kate is co-director of the novel Coronavirus Research Compendium. Welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Great. So um, I just got my flu shot like two hours ago. So maybe we should talk about that for just a second. Well, I, think there are, I think there are a lot of people who are wondering if they have to get a flu shot, if it's a good idea. Um, some people are probably thinking, well, everybody's doing such a good job of social distancing and washing hands and wearing masks. Maybe I don't need a flu shot. Uh, but there's a pretty compelling case for getting one this year above all years. Maybe you can say something about that. I'm really happy to hear that you got your flu shot. We are recommending that everybody goes and gets their flu shot this year. Um, Obviously, we're uh, dealing with a coronavirus pandemic uh, at this time. We don't have a vaccine for that disease. Um, But in the fall and in the winter, we also um, deal with uh, influenza uh, epidemics every single year. And we do have a vaccine uh, for those epidemics, and we would encourage everyone to get one as early as possible this year so that they're protected. 
Right. And there's, uh, you know, obviously other issues, including uh, you don't want to further overwhelm hospital systems uh, that are already probably going to face some pretty uh, large second wave burdens uh, with people coming with flu. And also you've got the other problem of people not knowing which thing they have. Uh, You get those early symptoms. You might have the flu and think that you've got COVID, which might cause you once again to investigate, you know, hospital care or something like that. I mean, it's going to be a confused and confusing enough picture, it seems to me, without a lot of people adding to it with what is at least a partially preventable disease. Absolutely. It is a partially preventable disease. We do have a moderately uh, efficacious flu vaccine and everybody should be encouraged to take it up for the exact reasons that you mentioned. You also don't want to be getting sick and going into a hospital care setting if you don't have to. Um, during the middle of a pandemic. So it's just another way to protect yourself um, from additional community exposure as well. So again, it's it's really important that everybody on this call um, or everybody who's listening to this program today uh, gets their flu vaccine as soon as possible um, before uh, the flu season starts this right. fall. I should say, I have I try to avoid crackpot theories on this show because there are enough of them mm-hmm. out there and it's better to have pure science. <laughs> I do have this, crack, I have this crackpot theory, which I've been nursing along for 20 years because I get my flu shot every year. Uh, and what I notice is that I, I not only don't get the flu if I get my flu shot, I don't get anything. And, and I've started to think that me, I mean, the Im, Im, immune system is kind of a mysterious creature anyway. And I start to wonder if maybe I have some kind of cross-reactive uh, immunities uh, from the flu shot, but I won't even ask you to comment comment on what is obviously a yeah. I, I don't I don't think we have any evidence for that right. <laughs> at this stage, but um, um, so maybe I, something to investigate, right? Uh, no, it, it remains my private crackpot idea. So, um, so Kate, um, <laughs> the other thing I can't help but feel right now is that. Here in the United States, it feels, still feels like we're failing. You know, we're failing to contain uh, this pandemic. We, you know, we might get the infection rate down from 70 or 80,000 a day down to 40,000 a day. That doesn't feel like a success. None of it feels like a success. If we head into November with 220,000 deaths, that can't feel like a success. And, and I'm still struggling with why you know, the global health index, the uh, global health security index rated America, the United States, is the number one most prepared for a pandemic uh, country going into this. So I know this is a there's a long answer to this question, but I mean, what what happened? Why? Why are we where we are right now? I mean, there's there's a hundred different reasons yes. uh, why I think we are uh, where we are. Um, I think, you know, I think what we should do is is really kind of it's obviously horrible what's happened in the past. We've had, um, you know, a a mixed response at best to the pandemic, particularly at the federal level. Uh, but I think, you know, we can look forward to the fall and think about what we can do to keep keep case numbers down. We've learned an awful lot about how this virus is spreading over the last eight months. Uh, as you mentioned, I. Uh, co-direct what's called the Novel Coronavirus Research Compendium. And so we've been reviewing all of the literature on COVID and how it spreads uh, since it's been being published in April and and, and March. And we've learned a lot about things that can protect us, things like washing your hands, wearing masks, um, getting things like your, you know, your flu shot will keep you from, from going out into the community and potentially exposing yourself even further. So there's lots that we can do to keep cases count 
keep case counts low in the fall. And I think um, at the state and, and federal level, there's also things we can be thinking about in terms of strategizing testing and, and thinking about how we're going to be deploying vaccines once they finally arrive. So, so there's a there's a really there's a lot of reasons I think we are where we are right now. Um, but I think you know we need to to look ahead and come up with a, a plan now, um, and hopefully a federal. Uh, plan that brings everybody together and puts us all on the same page to to bring these numbers down where they should be. So, yeah, I was listening to Ed Young and Andy Slavitt talking mm-hmm. today, and they they got onto the subject of what would this have been like if, you know, if it had been, I mean, this is a major league deadly pandemic, but what if it had had like the transmission rate of like the measles or, or had been as lethal as Ebola? You know, where would we be right now? Um, I, I, I want to just uh, talk about the way that we seem to be searching for one magic bullet and that it seems like there won't be one. There'll be a, a lot of different things. Um, let's say it's April or May of next year, 2021, and 50, 50% of the public has gotten vaccines that have somewhere around a 50 to 60% protective rate. That's that's only 25% protection in the general public. Is it kind of a given that next by still by next spring, we'll still be wearing masks, keeping our distance, staying out of bars, washing our hands? I mean, if we're smart, we'll still be doing that? I think so. I think so. And you bring up a really important point about how we have a lot of different interventions that are imperfect. And I... I, in my pre-COVID life, spent most of my time working on uh, controlling HIV transmission in African settings. So it's a generalized epidemic there, um, in much the same way that COVID is now a generalized epidemic in the U.S. And our big success to bringing incidents down and getting the virus under control in that setting has been what we call combination prevention. And that's how I think we should think about COVID, too. We take a bunch of interventions that may not be perfect or really effective on their own, but when you stack them together and you do them all at one time, we can keep transmission low. So if we all keep washing our hands, if we all avoid, um, you know, going out and, and having unnecessary interactions in the community as much as possible, if we um, all wear masks, so these things can collectively bring down uh, the effective reproductive number and keep a transmission in cases low. And so, so I think we need to think about every little bit that we do really matters and can make a difference. Uh, and, and it's really this idea of combination prevention that I think we'll be thinking about well into the spring and, and next summer. And you were talking about African countries. One of the things that I've been mm-hmm. following is Senegal, which is significantly outpacing the United States in controlling uh, COVID, uh, despite the fact that they don't have anything like the you know scientific or medical infrastructure that we have. So mm-hmm. it is interesting to watch that. But when you watch it, you're you're seeing a country that's moving on a lot of different fronts at once, and that gets us back to what we were just saying. It seems like you know next spring, COVID nineteen will probably be a disease that we get better at living alongside as opposed to a disease we cure or stop in its tracks. We'll probably have better actual clinical treatments for it. Uh, you know, the latest round of monoclonal and antibody treatments look kind of good. Uh, we'll be Fewer people will die from it because our ICUs get better. The overall treatment picture gets better. Uh, but we'll still have to do all this stuff, right? This will be a disease we live with for a while as opposed to a disease we cure. 
I think so. I mean, this this pandemic is not going anywhere. Um, we are going to be living with this. It will eventually become uh, an endemic disease after the initial epidemic phase ends. Um, and, you know, in, in time, in 10 years from now, this will likely just be a childhood disease that kids get when they're very young. And it will look something like the common cold. But right now, we're going to be living with this. And uh, and we're going to have to just do everything that we can uh, as individuals uh, to reduce spread for the foreseeable future until we have a vaccine or we have some highly efficacious treatment. And it's not guaranteed that those things will be available. So, um, so if you're not wearing a mask or, you know, if you're going out and, 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 you know, having big parties, I mean, those are, those are things you can stop doing to, to stop the spread right now. And we should be thinking about doing those things for some time. I agree with you that we're going to have to think about how we live with this in the long term. Um, and, you know, we have to think about sustainable efforts uh, to keep people, um, to keep people's mental health, um, but also to keep transmission low. And so there are lots of really smart people um, thinking about ways that we can, can control this pandemic and still maintain some semblance of normality. Um, but you know, it's going to be a long and complicated process and, and, um, and we just have to do what we can. We're talking to Kate Grabowski. She's co-director of the novel Coronavirus Research Compendium at Johns Hopkins. I think before we go to break, we have time to kind of look at this. So um, here's a clip of former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, Connecticut resident, uh, talking to Margaret Brennan, host of CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. Well, right now we're seeing infections go up around the country. The Northeast still is holding on to the gains that it, it achieved in driving down infections, but we're seeing infections starting to rise in the South as well. And you're definitely seeing a concentration of new infections in the Midwest. So that's, that's driving a lot of the growth in infections, but it's getting more distributed around the country. And the concern is that as we get a little bit more complacent because we are exhausted as a population from what we've been going through, we head back to school and college, people try to go back to work, against the backdrop of the fall and the winter when people are heading indoors um, because the weather's cooling. That's a real setup for risk. So, uh, Kate, we're also seeing at this time uh, in the UK, uh, they're looking at new England-wide measures. Uh, They're talking about a possible circuit break of a few weeks, uh, a pretty significant national lockdown, just to kind of try to break the cycle that they're having. So before I was asking you about next spring, we should talk a little bit about the short window. Uh, What what does the fall uh, most likely and and early winter, what what does does that period entail for COVID-19? I think, you know, most of the millennials, uh, you know, if you look at them over the long term and any kind of like sort of scenario planning uh, framework, show a rise in cases as we move into the fall and into the winter. Um, I think, you know, we can't really say for certainty whether or not the epidemic is going to peak in, in November or December. These are these are all unknowns. Um, if you know, if you're unfamiliar, the forecast hub, um, if you just Google that, uh, shows coronavirus uh, projections out for a few weeks, and that's about as good as we can get. Um, it's it's kind of like predicting the weather, what's going to happen. You know, two months from now is, is kind of, a, it's impossible to do. We know it might generally be cold, uh, but we don't know much beyond that. And that's kind of how it is with the coronavirus as well. The 
the exciting thing is that we have the ability to control what happens in the future, right? Like if we are, if, if, if we are practicing good infection control practices, if we are social distancing when possible, uh, we can keep transmission low and we can bend the curve. So it's not a foregone conclusion what's going to happen. We have a lot of power uh, to change the course of this epidemic. Um, and I think, you know, we can do that by listening to public health officials and scientists when they tell us um, to practice uh, certain infection control practices like wearing masks and, you know, getting tested when we don't feel well and doing all of the, the basic things like washing hands and, and isolating when sick. We're talking to Kate Grabowski, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University. She's going to stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll have more on the other side of that break. Hi, uh, we're back. I just want to quickly say before I uh, thank uh, everybody who worked on the show um, that, you know, this is something we made a commitment to doing a long time ago. I mean, months and months ago, we decided that Monday's shows would include every week um, some kind of update, some kind of way to help you understand what's going on here. And to that end, we've had people like Vincent Racaniello on twice, uh, Alan Dove, Brianne Barker. Uh, those are some of the people from uh, this week in virology, but also Angela Rasmussen, uh, Michael Mina, uh, Greg Gonsalves. Uh, we're very lucky to have Kate Grabowski. Today we had our colleague Jennifer Nizzo uh, last week. So if this is important to you and if you have specific questions, things you want us to try to figure out for you, you can write to me at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at ctpublic.org. Uh, and I will, oh, Saskia Popescu twice. Thank you for reminding me. Um, so, uh, so yeah, this is something that's very important to me and to the producer of this episode, Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, uh, a nurse. Uh, so it's good to have a nurse as your senior producer during a pandemic. Also, uh, special thanks, as usual, to Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making the whole thing work, making it possible for me to work remotely and for Betsy to work remotely as well. So uh, we're going to do all that. Uh, and tomorrow we're going to we're actually going to re-air because today Bill Murray turned 70 years old. So we did a whole show about Bill Murray without involving Bill Murray in any way. Uh, and you're going to hear that show uh, tomorrow. Maybe you need a break like this. All right. So we're we're back uh, with uh, Kate Grabowski uh, from Johns Hopkins. Uh, she is a, an infectious disease epidemiologist and co-director of the novel Coronavirus Research Compendium. So, uh, Kate, we're obviously uh, heading towards another very peculiar and I think we could say unprecedented scenario where because of the incredible proliferation uh, of vaccine trials, you know, the likelihood is that at some point, I don't really know whether it's November, December, January, we could be in a situation where there are seven or eight vaccines for COVID that are theoretically available to us. Uh, and I don't ever remember anything like that. I mean, it, it'll it'll force us into this kind of weird consumer choice. Or I mean, do you have any thoughts about how we will sort out what might be a potentially confusing scenario right there? 
first of all, if we have seven or eight efficacious vaccines, that would be amazing news. Uh, and I would welcome that with open arms. Uh, I think we're just hoping right now that we'll have one efficacious vaccine. Uh, I There are a lot of people that are really hard at work right now thinking about how we distribute vaccines. The National Academy of Sciences just uh, convened a whole panel on this exact uh, topic. I think... Um, you know, I imagine likely there will be vaccines that are within certain markets, and it's hard to imagine how much choice there would ultimately be, uh, just because the demand uh, globally is going to be so high uh, for all of these uh, different vaccines. So I think, um, I, you know, this is a, a question that we talk uh, a lot about in academic circles and and. In, in the public too right now, but um, there are people who are really actively working hard to figure out the best ways to distribute vaccines um, and, and, you know, what we would do in the event that there are more than one. So I, I think we can be confident that there will be a plan uh, um, that will be developed and moving forward. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're just going to have to scrutinize, scrutinize those plans and uh, make sure that they are meeting uh, the public's need. Uh, but um, but yeah, I would be I would be thrilled if there were multiple vaccines that were efficacious. I think but, we're just going to have to wait and see on that front. But when you say scrutinize those plans and scrutinize the trials, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, this is a slightly different situation, too, I think, than what we're accustomed to. I mean, there's just kind of no getting around the fact that there seems to be some kind of political impetus, uh, at least for President Trump, to promise the arrival of, of a vaccine uh, at a, by a certain date. Um, I mean, I, I am, I'm the guy who got my flu shot today. I get my flu shot in September or early October every single year. I completely believe in vaccines. I'm up to date on all my other mm -hmm. immun immunizations because I'm 65 years old. I got a pneumonia shot. So, but I, I'm sort of a vaccine skeptic here, at least in this little window of time. If a vaccine is available to me in November or December, and I feel as though that something has happened that doesn't typically happen, that there's something called Operation Warp Speed, that it's bringing mm -hmm. things to market uh, really, really quickly. I, I just feel like, you know, even I, a vaccine believer to my bones, would have some pretty significant questions about this. And I might not trust the government to give me the answers. I, I might sort of need, uh, I don't know, I might need Kate Grabowski to tell me it's okay. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, so I I I know a lot of people who are like you, uh, and uh, you know you can look at all the surveys uh, showing that uh, a lot of people are really skeptical of the process. I just I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, these trials can be done. You know, you can increase uh, uh, the speed of a trial by either doing it quickly and, and, and badly, which is not happening, or you can increase the numbers of people that are enrolled in your study. Because ultimately what you need is you need endpoints in your study to be able to say, okay, the vaccine group is different from the control group. Mm -hmm. And typically what happens is that you, know, you follow a relatively small group of people over a long period of time um, to accrue those endpoints and be able to say, okay, this group is very different from this group. Uh, but we want to speed up that process. And instead of, you know, cutting corners, another way to do that is by increasing the size of the trials. 
So if you look at the size of these vaccine trials, they're huge. I mean, there's tens and thousands of people enrolled in them. And the reason that we're doing that is because we need to, you know, we can get to those endpoints uh, faster by just enrolling more people. And so we're not really cutting corners there. Um, we're just we're just expanding the size of these trials. I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, I, I, I'm very pleased to see that um, the some of the major uh, um, kind of vaccine candidates, the, the um, industries that are, are testing those vaccines have put forward their analytical plans so that we can all view them. So this includes AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Moderna. Um, and that transparency, I think, is wonderful. Uh, and they're very clear about what their endpoints are and when they're going to be doing their interim analyses. So I, I right now feel pretty comfortable with the process. I'm not that concerned. Uh, and I just think, you know, we just have to keep up uh, this transparency. We need to, you know, demand that the data that's going to be, uh, you know, underlying any uh, expanded use authorization or um, any kind of licensure of these vaccines is made public so people like myself and other scientists can evaluate it. Uh, but at this stage, I think folks have been transparent and, and the speed should not concern people that much. It's just speedy because we're enrolling more people. So I, you know, I, I think you should still have trust in the process uh, and uh, and you should be welcoming these sort of open, um, uh, this open science that these uh, vaccine manufacturers are participating in. So, so I think, yeah, just, just stay calm and stay the course right now. And I think, uh, I think things are going well. Um, I, in some ways, the best thing that I've seen happen in the last couple of weeks, and it's a weird thing to describe as the best thing, is in fact AstraZeneca pausing its trial because of one one adverse circumstance, which they had to investigate as a possible reaction. Mm -hmm. Everybody who wanted to know about this now knows it was a case of transverse myelitis. But to me, mm -hmm. that said, okay, so they are actually going to follow the rules. If they get a warning flag, if there's a red light blinking on the dashboard, they will stop and investigate whether it could be connected to the vaccine. That, uh, that I found that that reassured me rather than making me nervous. Yeah, I think that should be now. very reassuring. I yeah. will say that, you know, this happens all the time in trials. There are adverse events um, and studies and they're stopped and they're evaluated. And so this is just the normal trial process. Um, I think that they're following it to make everybody comfortable, like you said. Uh, and uh, and we'll just have to see what happens and whether or not that event was actually connected to the vaccine. We we don't know that yet. So that's just something else to keep in mind. Right. Um, you know, we have only about two minutes left. Maybe I shouldn't ask this question. But it seems as though, you know, one thing that will make some people nervous is an EUA, an emergency use authorization mm -hmm. for a vaccine. Although yeah. some of these trial models are, are have a two-year safety investigation. So... I mean, it's quite possible that even next year you could wind up with uh, taking using a vaccine that was authorized under an EUA. Yeah, I mean, we could we could see um, an EUA issue for a vaccine. That's that that's definitely a possibility. I I will note that there um, uh, there is some confirmation um, from Mark's Hahn at the FDA that they're actually going to be. 
um, having uh, issuing EUA guidance, and it's going to be coming out for vaccines in particular. So they're going to be releasing the process by uh, which an EUA would be issued for a vaccine, and they're going to be very transparent about that. So, um, so it is possible that a vaccine um, could be distributed under an EUA, but we'll just have to wait and see. Right. Um, and transparent is good. All right. Kate and again, Grabowski. yeah, transparency is key. Exactly. Yeah, very key. Very key. Yeah. Uh, so Kate Grabowski. Mm-hmm. Also, we paid for a lot of these things. We should be able to know what's going on in them. Exactly. So um, Kate Grabowski, co-director of the novel Coronavirus Research Compendium at Johns, Hop- Johns Hopkins. Thank you for being here today with us. Uh, and thank you to everybody who listened, too. And let, let me know if there's other stuff you want to know. Somebody had a complicated flu shot question. I didn't think it was fair to spring it on Kate. Uh, all right, so um, we'll, we got lots more shows coming up this week. Because there's plenty left to wreck. We got six months left. How many years? How many years will we try? How many years will we try to cram in?